Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is of Robert Eggers' directorial debut, The Witch, which is leaving Netflix on September 16th. Set in the 1630s New England, The Witch focuses on a Puritan family banished from their plantation and must set out into the wilds of the New England wilderness. But as they quickly learn, this new world is filled with old world dangers. And joining me to weed through the witchcraft is writer, director, actor, and most notably, my Twitter pal, Rob Harmon. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jay. No problem. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, yeah. I, I was uh, I was looking for like the right chance. And when I saw that you were doing signs, I felt like I'd missed it because it's one of my favorites. Uh, but, but, but you know, we landed on The Witch, which you, for some reason, haven't done yet. And I, I was like, you got to do The Witch yeah. if you're doing a horror podcast. <laughs> It was a pretty big oversight on my part, but it is one of those things where comfortable enough now, at least doing the podcast where I feel comfortable fielding people, mostly from Twitter that I know that I, and it gives me an opportunity to talk about movies that for whatever reason I haven't t- covered yet, but also movies that I've wanted to kind of just revisit. So like right. this being a perfect example, but uh, I wanted to say I recently revisited the horror film that you wrote the screenplay for, which is This Is Our Home, uh, which is oh, currently streaming really? on uh, Amazon Prime. I just wanted to say like that remains so memorably disturbing. It's like dug into my brain in a way that is really impressive considering like it's a pretty small scale of a movie in terms of just the scope mm-hmm. really, but it's so memorable and impactful that uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. I'm sorry you put yourself through that twice. That's a that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I had to uh, I had to wait at least a month before revisiting it. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a special, fun little experience. If you if you ever want to review that on your podcast, let me know, and I'm I'm happy to find you a better guest. <laughs> but before we get to that, I wanted to kind of just do the little icebreaker that I do with first time guests and uh, ask them kind of their earliest memory of a horror film that affected them for, uh, for better or worse. Okay. So I thought a lot about this, Jay, because you told me up front. And so I had time to prepare my answer (laughs) and it goes back, I think to going into my parents' bedroom at night while they were watching something on TV. And it was this horrendous sequence of body horror that I should not have been subjected to as a child <laughs> uh, from a movie that I would later discover is the fly. Oh, God. I don't know if you're familiar with the fly. Oh, two. the second one. I haven't seen that one, yeah. but so, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The second one has a sequence near the end. That's just like, I think about it now and it, it probably like today, it's probably a bit campy. I probably, I mean, it doesn't compare to anything like, you know, carpenters, the thing, mm-hmm. But as a kid, it was just like, it broke me and I've never been fixed. That and seeing signs from a young age was just utterly terrifying. I remember seeing signs and I couldn't sleep because I was convinced aliens were going to invade. And my parents were very logical because they wanted me to go to sleep and they would continually reassure me if aliens were going to invade, it wouldn't be because you saw this movie. (laughs) So the chances of them invading tonight, pretty low. And I was like, okay, yeah, I could. The same kind of logic if you get on an airplane and you see a famous person on it, like this plane can't exactly. possibly crash because there's a famous person on it. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, if I, if I really dug in, I would say the fly too, or at least the ending. Does that count? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's funny that you mentioned body horror because my first real scary moment in a movie that stuck with me and uh, messed me up was... Uh, Poltergeist, the original one. My oh. my dad showed me that when I was a kid, when I was probably too young. And I mean, it's a creepy, unsettling movie. But then when you get to the scene where the paranormal investigator looks into the mirror and his face starts yeah. melting and he starts ripping chunks of his face off, like that scene, Ugh. that's like a NC-17 scene that kind of sneaks, sneaks yeah. up on you in that movie, considering I think it's PG yeah. or something. <laughs> a lot of those older, older movies have scenes that are just way out of left field like grade mp like you know when when in jaws when quint gets bitten and he's just gushing blood out of his mouth it's like oh this is 
PG. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's cool that we both had that uh, formulative uh, uh, traumatic body horror to kickstart our uh, horror habits. But uh, is that cool or is that, does that say something's wrong with us? Well, I mean, that's, that's going to be for another <laughs> podcast, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, today, I mean, we're here to chat about Robert Eggers film, The Witch, uh, which I needed to revisit. As you mentioned, uh, it was one that I should have reviewed early on and I didn't, but uh, I'm curious to hear what about the film holds up for you the best on a rewatch? On rewatch? I mean, I've rewatched it more than a good Christian boy should. <laughs> it is so good. Um, just the, and you know, especially when you put on the subtitles because I'm not educated enough to, <laughs> to catch. And you know, and then you have actors like uh, Ralph Ineson. Mm. He has this deep voice, mm. and he's very—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not always easy to kind of catch what they're saying. But man, the themes, the there's an ambiguity, a surreality that Robert Eggers likes to play with in this kind of dream—not quite dream logic like David Lynchian, but mm-hmm. like he—he, he, you know, it, you've seen The Lighthouse, right? Yeah. I won't get into The Lighthouse, but it. it Similarly, he, he's interested in telling like a folk tale where the reality might not be as clear. Mm-hmm. And every time I watch it, I do the same thing when I revisit Chris Nolan's The Prestige. I, I try to rewatch it with like different uh, interpretations in mind. And so I, we're allowed to talk spoilers, right? Spoilers and swears are cool. So Okay, okay. <laughs> spoilers and swears there's a podcast um the witch every time i watch it i try to position it in a different way where the witch is a different character because early on what sticks out to me pretty early on anya taylor joy's character gets accused of being a witch mm-hmm. by by her her little sister mm-hmm. or something and anya is like yes i'm the witch i took the baby i I do all this. I fly through the woods at night. And it's just to scare a sister. But I remember it was like my third or fourth watching of that movie where I was like, what if she's telling the truth there? Mm-hmm. What if there or maybe she's like, it's clear as horrible stuff happens throughout the film, she's surprised by it. But what if there is some element of truth of it's her that's drawing this? And that's something that, and that's kind of, that's kind of moving past all the, you know, all the thematic stuff, all the, you know, with religious puritanism if or separatism, I, I, I can't tell what they are, but they're, they're, I guess they're separatists. Yeah. Um, is there, they're ostracized from their village. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the feminism, it's a, I mean, Eggers, I think Eggers doesn't love that people just call it a feminist horror movie, right. but it, I think it's apt. Yeah. I mean, you, I, when I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about, sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, that's perfect. But anyway, that's what sticks out to me about the film, all those things. And I mean, for me, this was only my, this was my first rewatch. And I was, yeah, which again, that's a, that's an issue for another time. But uh, yeah, I was, I was excited to actually get to rewatch it with subtitles this time. So I could pick up on all of the sort of little nuances and whatnot in the dialogue. It's a different movie. Yeah, it's a completely different film. And you pick up not only on the dialogue, but... I also loved that ambiguity that you were talking about and how the first time I watched the movie, maybe I didn't have the proper expectations for it, but I went in based off of the trailer. And so I assumed it was going to be a more conventional witch horror film, which, I mean, that's pretty fair, I think, based off of the trailer. But I think in revisiting it and looking at it more, focusing on the characters and viewing it as a family drama and seeing how all of these different kind of struggles within the family are happening and whether there's the witching events or not, like the family at its core is falling apart in a lot of different ways. And again, we're not going to get too much into the lighthouse, but I love Edgar's ambiguity that he presents his films in because you could watch either of these films and you could take it at face value. Like, Hey, these are supernatural events that are happening, or these are people that are kind of succumbing to dynamics with other characters that are perfectly normal, but due to a certain situation, they're having a horrific event, whether it's supernatural or not. Right. And building off that, if I may, Eggers has mentioned there's a part early on where the farmer and his son are out like just looking at their crops and they're not doing so well. And he's looking at corn 
And the corn, they don't really draw attention to this, but Eggers specifically uh, chose to make the corn have a disease of some kind, like it's diseased corn. I forget what he said, but he said like something moldy, to the right? effect. Yeah, something like that. And he said something to the effect of people who ate that would have experienced hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And so he 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 plants breadcrumbs in there for you to go. You know, oh, it's it's all bad corn. That's all this movie is. Right. If you want. Yeah, and I think that again that is interest. That's a great like avenue that you could view the movie through, or lens rather that you could view the movie through, and especially when you have that dinner sequence it lingers on them and I, they're all sitting around the table and they're not really having a conversation, but they're passing the bread around and the camera mm -hmm. kind of lingers there and it watches every single one of them take a bite of bread. And so, oh, I think yeah, that. and that was something that I just noticed on my first rewatch. So I started to think about it in terms of that because I had read that theory where it's like, oh, they're all hallucinating from moldy corn or moldy wheat. And right. I think that that is something that is very rare in that a lot of times like ambiguity, obviously it's this could have happened or that could have happened, but the lens with right. which and the kind of avenues and explanations for why things are happening. I mean, there's just such depth there that I think that's really what makes this film very impressive to me on for being his directorial debut. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, which is crazy. I mean, I've, I've tried, look as a, as a filmmaker, I've constantly looked at his film and go, it's a, it's a period piece in old English with R rating and no, you know, very few jump scares. It's not a mainstream horror movie. How does this guy get funding right. for his directorial debut to be that? And so that he, he's a filmmaker I'm very much trying to emulate. It's been interesting you mentioned the camera work because I, that stuck out to me on this rewatch, just how confident it is but but very very low-key mm -hmm. and a very you know obviously it's very there aren't a whole lot of fast shots it's a very pretty static movie but even stuff like you know like when the mom gets out of bed at night and the silver her silver chalice is like in the background out of focus mm -hmm. and you expect i mean i would expect them to rack focus but they don't right it's just it's there but you can clearly see it and i just I love stuff like that. Or the way they shoot the actual witches, mm -hmm. which is very dreamlike. I mean, the whole movie is kind of intentionally dreamlike. I agree. He has a, a certain map, like a seasoned mastery to him where he's not afraid to linger in spaces that or settings that are not obviously there's no like big action or massive culminating action moment or something like that. It's more he's just lingering in space. And that yeah. lingering for the amount of time that he lingers and just he makes you feel like you're an observer in what's happening. There's an unease in that that most people, you don't see that in their first film. You see them being very reliant on kind of more horror traditional staples. We've got jump scares. We've got this big gory moment here. We've got just that kind of like the low key restraint that he has and how effective he is in conveying space was something that. For me, I mean, I really appreciated that, especially on a rewatch. Again, uh, the first time mm -hmm. I watched it, I was expecting more traditional like witch scares. And if anything, on this rewatch and not focusing on the witch elements or the supernatural elements that they show, I had a greater appreciation for those moments because they're few and far between throughout the film. But again, it's they're so evenly paced throughout the movie that you can really appreciate mm -hmm. his filmmaking and then it's almost surprising when you see something creepy, like when we see the witch after right. the witch captures uh, Samuel and then we see yeah. him out in the, uh, in the cabin and then she makes this, the uh, stew or whatever out of him. Oh, the body rub. Oh. Yeah. And that's so I counted. That's like less than 10 minutes into the film. Mm. Like it's a, it feels like a longer movie because it takes its time. Mm. But I think credits roll. I'm, this might be off, but it might even be under 90 minutes. It's over 90 minutes with credits. Mm -hmm. I know that. Yeah. But it's but it's a very lean movie. And yeah, I, I remember I saw an early screening. I, I don't want to call it a test screening because, I mean, it had already been acquired from Sundance mm -hmm. or already premiered at Sundance, whichever. And so they're, they're holding... I guess a screening to decide how to market the thing. And so I saw it maybe half a year before it was out, out. 
and I knew nothing about it. And I was just chilled because it really throws you off the, you know, when she pastes up a baby. Yeah. Five, five, it's very abrupt mm-hmm. because the whole movie has been this very muted color palette with these people wearing, you know, big hats and Puritan clothing. And then it's like, oh, she's, is she, oh, oh, wow. That's happening. Okay. And you're, it, it almost takes you like a couple seconds to process what you're seeing because it's so jarring. And yeah, I think it's it's moments like that. Where, what was your first experience seeing the movie? Was it in the theater? So I saw it in the theater and I, I just based it off of like seeing a trailer, but I didn't know anything mm-hmm. about Eggers. I didn't know much about the development of it and whatnot. And I, like at that time, right. I didn't really know A24 obviously as well as yeah, they were still as well as we all they did. were still like new yeah new kind of new especially to horror they weren't like the big horror name they are now right i think the witch is like the witch put them on the map mm-hmm. and then hereditary everybody's like whoa <laughs> well it was like it, they got put on the horror map and then it redefined a lot of different like expectations for hey horror movies I mean, this is like, that's like a mainstream thing where people are like, horror movies aren't scary anymore. And then Hereditary comes and it's just like, no, we're more yeah. than still capable of scaring the fuck out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you hear Jay Baruchel's recent thing? Did you see what happened with Yeah, him? I did. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Are we allowed to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So just for people that don't know, Jay Baruchel, I, I believe this is uh, not quote for quote, but he basically was promoting his film, Random Acts of Violence. And essentially the quote is to the gist of like horror films are kind of played out. They're just kind of splatter gore. And um, I forget what, what other word he used, but it's just a bunch of comments basically saying horror hasn't evolved and it's been stagnant in this kind of this broad generalization that mainstream audiences sometimes uh, feel towards horror. Promoting your film as being the cure for a problem is like, that's a whole like other ego kind of thing. Like no one filmmaker has the specific cure that's going to remedy a problem that for the most part, anybody that watches horror for the last, not even decade, it's being redefined constantly, like on a yearly basis. So this idea that you're making a horror film and yet you view horror in and of itself as being like lesser or something to that extent, like besmirching horror yeah. in a lot of ways. I was, it, 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 it did come across a bit uh, like peering down his nose mm-hmm. at the genre. But I mean, I, I, I look at, here's a, here's a hot take. <laughs> from what I could tell, that quote was from a press kit that was going out to, like it wasn't something he said in an interview. Mm-hmm. And that, that, to me, that says like, maybe that was how he pitched the film to like financiers. So that, yes. So that is, and I mean, he came out since because people on, uh, on horror Twitter or whatever you want to say, like they were obviously, they were very reactionary to that and people saying like, this is bullshit and all these different things. And then it came out and I believe he himself addressed it. And he was like, yeah, this is basically a pitch that, or it was promotion to try to get funding or uh, financing the film. Um, See, I didn't know about that, but that's what it felt yeah. like because I'm 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 putting together a pitch packet for a film now, and I'm saying like this is the coolest horror movie ever. This is there's nothing else like mm-hmm. it. Like I'm trying to be the hype man for right. my little project because it doesn't exist yet, right. and I'm trying to like convince producers to look at it and go, oh wow, he's right. And so that's what that's the energy that came off that statement. So to hear you clarify that he came out and clarified. Yeah, it, that, that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's very telling, too, because when you if you know anything like propose to know a great deal about how films get made, but you have to assume that the person that is going to consume that film, Random Acts of Violence, is completely different than the person that is financing it or is going to have some sort of financial stake in it. Like, not that this was the case with Random Acts of Violence, but I think of it as like, I have to pitch this studio exec in a suit and that's all he is, is just like a big money bag. Like yep. I have to get yep. him it, excited about it. Yeah. And this suit has seen 20 other pitches today of low budget horror films. Right. And they're all the next game changing. They're all the witch, <laughs> you know, every, after, after the witch came out, everybody was like, this is the next, the witch. <laughs> but by the time, you know, by the time the witch is out, they're looking for the next thing. 
Exactly. You're looking for hereditary, for Midsommar, for the lighthouse, for, but anyway, yeah, back to, back to the witch. Yeah. So I wanted to comment on the, uh, the baby, uh, the baby smashing scene, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a better <laughs> description for it, but, uh, that, so uh, <laughs> I completely um, forgot how the film opened. And yeah. so the film opens with them getting banished from the colony and, then it kind of bleeds into life a year later where they're established. They have this home and it looks like they've, they built a shed. And then I think they're building a second house or a barn or something, but they're established. Yeah. They've been living here for a significant period of time where, and mm. then obviously Samuel goes missing when Thomason is playing peekaboo. And that's a really phenomenal first label of the scares is while she is looking at the baby and doing peekaboo, but we see it from Samuel's perspective. And so yeah. on the third peekaboo or whatever, the baby disappears and we kind of hear rustling in the grass and she runs into the woods yeah. and we realize, oh, the child has been kidnapped. Originally, the film was supposed to open with that, which I mean, really? yeah. And I thought like, hey, that that would be a pretty good beginning. But then I guess Eggers thought, well, I want to establish who these people are in this world in a way that he doesn't mm. spend much time doing that. And like you said, he's very kind of economical with his time in this movie. And for him to have the, again, as a first time director, him having the foresight, like, Hey, why don't I throw in five minutes of exposition and then kind of get right into that scare. Mm. And in, in establishing that world, I mean, it makes that scene of we seeing the witch smashing up the baby and you don't even see it first. You hear it, right? You kind of, yeah. that's a, another fantastic use of kind of the natural lighting in a scene and that's what uh they did with a lot of this film and that you hear the baby getting ground up in the mortar and pedestal before uh, it, <laughs> saying that like i'm just gonna get used to that <laughs> but i mean that like you said to use the word that you used like that is such a jarring event and horrific event and it's handled in such mm -hmm. a that's very refined <laughs> like they don't a lot of it is implied right we don't have to see yeah. We don't have to see her dropping a leg or taking a leg out or something like that. You know what I mean? A lot of you hear it. It's all based on the sound. And then you see bits, you see enough, right? You see exactly what you need to see to put together the picture in your mind mm -hmm. of what's going on. And even still, yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that that was going to be the opening because that would be so different. The fact that he sets it up with a five minute call it a prologue mm -hmm. um that lulls you into not a sense of safety but it's very very low-key yeah. it's very chill and then just to smash to that it because it's an abrupt cut you know like like with the you know it starts with the baby a very fuzzy shot of the baby just lying there going me and she like strokes it creepily mm -hmm. and then you see a knife and it's like what and then it cut to all that follows if they had opened the movie like that i'm not sure it would have worked as well because it, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have given us the audience the time to be jarred if that makes sense we also wouldn't be invested in this bit not that we're super invested in this baby but <laughs> obviously yeah. you don't want any kid whether you invest in them or not to get mashed up but i mean even in that five minutes you are able to form like some real empathy for these people. They came over from another country. They've become established within a community and then they're, they're sent out of that community. And now they're on their own in this wilderness all by themselves. Yeah. Clearly, if I'm, I don't know how long it takes to build a house, but it's been a month, a couple of handful of months and no one has come to help them. No one's come to check up on them. And so this idea that they're on their own and in establishing that, it just, it gives more credence that we should be sympathetic towards these people and we should care for these people. And I mean, again, just his ability to show us just enough that we're able to kind of form our own idea of like this horrific thing that's happening. That really speaks to like the folklore aspect of the movie in that I don't, I think it's telling that he describes it as a New England folk tale in that it's not a traditional horror movie because it's more about kind of like preying on what people think is happening rather than what yeah. might actually be happening. Preying on what would have been their actual fears at the time. Yeah, exactly. Is something I know Eggers has expressed a lot of interest in. Like I don't see Eggers doing a modern rom-com. <laughs>
he's he's interested in periods where people's understanding of the world wasn't quite as informed as ours is now Mm -hmm. and what if we took that as reality what if the lighthouse you know what if these guys believed what they believed in the lighthouse was real and same with the witch you know that what if their fears of you know the 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 potential evils and temptations of a young woman coming into her womanhood and what that could lead to what if that was all real mm-hmm. um yeah it's, it's it's interesting that he does that i'm i'm really excited for his viking movie i don't know if you know anything about um, it but no i haven't i just knew it was a viking movie have you heard anything about it i I think it slipped in one interview or one podcast because I've listened to every podcast Robert Eggers has done. Mm-hmm. I'm like obsessed with him in an unhealthy way. <laughs> uh, and he, I think he mentioned in passing that it is based on the original story that Hamlet is based mm-hmm. on. So like the old Norse story that Shakespeare ripped off. So if I had to guess, I'd say it's about a, a Viking prince getting revenge. I have breaking bad news from Collider.com. It looks like Bill Skarsgård has dropped out of the movie because... Wait, as, as of an when? An hour ago. Oh, this is new news. Yeah. Breaking, oh, breaking oh. news on uh, Daily Horror Habit. Uh, but yeah, it looks like he's dropped out due to a schedule, quote unquote scheduling nightmare. Oh, man. That bites. Yeah. At least it's not because he got COVID like Batman. Yeah. After they had just, uh, didn't they just resume filming too? They just started resuming, which is so, it's not funny when anybody gets sick, but that's a little funny. Yeah. Well, it just kind of shows like the values that uh, major studios have. Like you just got to keep trucking, man. Just got to keep trucking. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure everybody on that set was wearing a mask over their nose and mouth, except the one guy (laughs) who wasn't allowed. I was going to say that Batman cow is not great for, uh, spreading uh, (laughs) germs no it wouldn't be it wouldn't be i think it's really interesting what you said in that it's all about him capturing people that their horror and their fear really stems from their lack of understanding around the world and how things actually work so if you don't understand what something how something is the way it is then your mind is going to form these often part of it is going to be these crazy explanations for what's happening like oh my chickens died. My goat is bleeding blood. Uh, oh, my daughter must be a witch kind of thing. And yeah. he does this in the lighthouse as well, where it's all about preying on people's lack of understanding. And yet he makes that very palpable for us, obviously a modern audience who understand most of the things that they don't. And yet his movies don't come across as, it doesn't come across as silly. Like this idea that my right. daughter could be a witch. It's like, oh, he presents that in a way that is so authentic to the period that is incredibly disturbing. And it's something that you can actually connect to in a certain way, just because it does prey on that kind of primal element, even though it's a Puritan's nightmare for the period, he's very capable of kind of translating that into a way that we, the modern audience really, I mean, can feel that fear. Yeah, no, I I told he lends it weight because it is real to these characters. And it, it is real in the world he presents. And that's, yeah, that's a good point. And something I appreciate about it because it could easily come across as uh, silly or campy. Thomason could have glowing eyes in one scene or something like that, you know? Oh, like Yeah, which I, I, I mean, even that, like I could, I could take that. It's all about how it's presented. Like in the opening scene, he has a witch like flying on a broomstick, but it's done in a, in a way that's like really art house, mm-hmm. like just, painfully art house so much so that I almost didn't realize what I was seeing. (laughs) Here's a question for Mm -hmm. you. At the very end, the final scene, we see a bunch of witches dancing around a a campfire, just having a good witchly time. (laughs) As witches tend to do. As witches do. Do you think those witches have been involved in the events of the whole movie or has it just been one witch? I would. So that's a great question. I think my thought is that all of those witches are other young women that are coming into their womanhood from around New England. Oh, interesting. So they haven't been witches for long. There, this is this is Fight Club, and these are all the new recruits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As uh, as Tyler Durden would say, their monkeys ready to be shot into space, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, that I mean, that's how I interpret it because the first witch that we see 
is very old until she kind of does the the baby rubbing ritual where she becomes uh, very young and hot. Uh, Interesting. So you thought that was a permanent change? uh, Not that that was permanent, but just that the reason that she has probably had to do that repeatedly is that it's a part of a spell that doesn't last very long. Right. Right. But which I mean, we kind of see that when she grabs Caleb. She grabs. It's like one of two jump jump scares in the whole movie. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I kind of saw all the other witches as, I mean, unless my memory's failing me, which it probably is, um, all the other witches were relatively the same age as Thomason or? From, from my memory, they're, they're all different ages. Oh, okay. they're, they're, they're women of just all over the spectrum. That's interesting that you see that as. Just this idea that like the, the, woods, are, the woods are home to more than one threat, essentially. And yeah. that kind of just speaks sure. to the the folklore folktale nature of it in that like the woods are filled with these things that we don't understand. Like this is still the new world. And this is an element of the world that this new world that the Puritans are not ready for. And they right. are very, that we find that like they're justified in their fears and just how like superstitious they are and all these things. Cause we get firsthand depending on your interpretation of things. Like one Avenue is, Hey, it's filled with witches. The other mm-hmm. one is, she ate moldy bread and is hallucinating, but <laughs> which is which is to be fair a boring explanation. I, I would much prefer the witches being real. Yeah, at least for the movie. Yeah, I, I mean, so we we agree on that then because I was thinking a lot about the different interpretations and while all of the interpretations work and like he backs it up and that again speaks to Edgar's ability to like tell a really highly detailed story and setting and atmosphere, mm-hmm. but for me like. It's all about the supernatural elements. And yeah, there might be explanations where you can dismiss them or you can discredit them, but I just think it's a more interesting film, especially with like Black Phillip being the yes. the archetype of everything that's happening, and yet he's been hiding in plain sight the whole movie. Like that to me yes. is far more terrifying than they're hallucinating or it's all hysteria because it doesn't really matter in the end, right? Like we still feel all yep. those emotions that the characters do whether they're just being hysterical or there's some funky shit going on. Exactly. Exactly. But I want to come back to something you said about, you know, she, she rubs the baby oil (laughs) and she, she becomes, as you said, younger and hot. And the way I interpreted it is she puts on this facade of a young, attractive woman specifically for Caleb. Mm -hmm specifically because the witch appears throughout the film to different people as what they desire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's established Caleb has kind of going through puberty. He's checking out his sister, which like, like, (laughs) it's, it's subtle, but like there are a couple shots of him looking at Thomason's chest. Mm -hmm. He's like developing. And when the young witch presents herself, there's very clearly like cleavage, which would be very rare in like Puritan, America. And so to accentuate that, it's subtle. They don't draw attention to that. But that made me think, oh, has the witch been presenting herself to different people in different ways? And when she, the witch shows up, maybe it's not the witch. Because when they lock all the kids in the goat shed, Mm -hmm. I guess maybe it's the devil. It's either the witch or the devil, in my interpretation, that shows up to tempt the mother. Right. And she, and that evil takes the form of you know, her sons that went missing. Yeah. They're dead. I think it just, it speaks to this idea that the witch or the supernatural threat that is in this area that's decided to prey on this family. The reason that this family is being preyed upon is not only because the opportunity is there, they're the closest settlers to the woods, but also is that you look at the dynamic between them and everybody is essentially crumbling, except Thomason, for instance. But I mean, that's another thing that I'll get into in a minute. Do you think she is a witch? So my interpretation of it on a rewatch is that she is not born a witch. She's made into a witch. And that is yeah, yeah. that your interpretation? No, no, I think, I think that's, that's, that's basically the journey of the movie at a surface level as she is, you know, but, but there, what about the twins? Have you given them any thought? Because the twins are really interesting side characters every time I watch it because they're, they're just kind of off. They're, they're these just little chaotic anomalies <laughs> off doing their own thing, getting tied up on leashes and stuff. <laughs> and 
if you if you have the subtitles on, every time they sing about Black Phillip, mm-hmm. it's always something kind of alluding to him being the devil. And when they talk about, you know, Black Phillip told us this, Black Phillip told us that. And then at the end, the big reveal that Black Phillip can talk mm-hmm. is probably the devil. It, it makes me go, oh, were the twins right the entire time? Yeah. Were they, they've been communing with this, with this goat? What does that say about them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think that's what, I mean, apart from I find the two of them incredibly creepy looking when they're running around and dancing and, <laughs> and shouting about the goat. <laughs> yeah, especially when we don't have it confirmed yet that Black Phillip is actually the devil. And they're just like singing right. all these goat songs about their goat. Like the family should have probably stepped in and been like, you're a little too focused on the goats. But I mean, there's not a whole lot else to do besides check out your sister and sing. <laughs> it's a real short list or get yelled at by mom and dad. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, like I see them as being the ones that are obviously they're the youngest and they're around the sheep all the time or the goat. And they're the ones mm-hmm. that are corrupted first, basically. And in corrupting them and making them almost like his devout followers from the beginning of the film, he uses that to destabilize the relationships further. Like, she, the, the twins are in constant conflict with Thomason and trying to turn the parents against her and then trying mm-hmm. to feign their innocence. But, but what, if, what if they're right, though? What if they're right that it is Thomason that's, whether intentionally or not, drawing all this? Because I noticed that Thomason, Thomason is around a lot of the bad events that happen in the film. Like Thomason... When, when Caleb wants to go into town with the horse and the gun and Thomason is like, I have to go with you. And then she goes with him and something goes wrong. And it's not inherently her fault that it goes wrong. And, and Caleb gets taken by the witch because Thomason gets knocked out. It's implied. Yeah. But still her presence just kind of seems to, you know, and obviously she was taking care of the baby when it went kidnapped. So I could understand an explanation of it where I don't see her as being a witch in, with malice or that she is doing these yeah, things, but it's yeah. more kind of like she's emanating whatever kind of witchcraft right. energy that is making these events occur and whatnot. And then Black Phillip is yeah. obviously like, hey, she's a ticking time bomb. I'm going to use this to yeah. my advantage to like fully get her into uh, the baby smashing camp of witches. Um, are, you, are you a Harry Potter fan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I enjoy Harry Potter. So like Harry, Harry Potter, before Hagrid told him he was a wizard, there was just weird stuff happening. You know, he would make the glass disappear at a Great point. snake. Exhibit. So that, yeah, I, I think she's, she just, she didn't have Hagrid. She had Black <laughs> Phillip. It's, it's the same, it's the same universe as Harry Potter. This is the greater, the greater art house universe. We're going to bleed uh, Harry Potter into the witch. Oh, I love it. We joked early on about rewatching the film with subtitles and mm-hmm. it is like you said a completely different movie when you're watching with subtitles obviously yeah. you're gonna that happens when you tend to pick up on words better and dialogue and whatnot but i mean the authenticity of the shakespearean language that he's used really had mm-hmm. a profound effect on me just in terms of convey further conveying the world and how authentic it is it's not just we're recreating okay. all of these sets that we had to make from scratch because nothing from that period exists anymore like it. And we have, and just approaching it with the language, I think gave me such a greater appreciation for just how refined Eggers view of a new England folktale story that he wanted to tell was. I find, I find Eggers interesting just as an artist because he starts every project with like a mood, a tone, an image. Mm -hmm. He's very visual because he used to be an art director or production designer, I think. But his parents like taught Shakespeare and he came up as an actor. And so he also gets in, you know, that shows in how his actors perform that, that old timey dialogue. And it just, the, the dramatic weight really sells the horror because it feels like they're not doing like horror movie acting. They're doing just really good acting. Mm-hmm. Like that part when, when Ralph Ineson is out like, out at night, kneeling in the ground and like shoving dirt in his mouth and going, I begged thee, I begged thee. I'm like, I think about that like once a week and just too much, too much thinking about that scene. But it's so, so good. And Eggers is just the perfect mix 
of influences to like get to that, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really telling that he had the foresight to be like, we're going to do casting only out of the UK because not- that, Is that, and, that something that they did? Yeah. That okay. was something that they did. And I mean, it really shows and it's such as you would think, obviously it's such a simple thing, but how many times have we ever seen films that have Shakespearean language in it? And you're like, oh, this is that famous actor just doing their best Shakespeare impression. Whereas in the film, it sounds so authentic coming from their mouths and that you're like, I'm really in this world. Like, I don't see her as Anya Taylor-Joy. I see her as Thomason. She wasn't Anya Taylor-Joy back then. She was a, she was a known name. Right. But yeah, I, I totally see what you're... So does that mean he's only directed one American actor? Um, Willem Dafoe? Yes. I mean, he looks, he might be changing that up for his next film, but I think. Interesting. Because Eggers is American. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's from, uh, he's from my neck of the woods. He's from uh, New Hampshire. That's right. That's right. You're in New England, yeah. right? I'm just outside okay. of Boston. Um, that's something that, again, I was really able to appreciate even more is just like growing up in New England. You obviously, you inevitably end up in the woods and the woods all look right. like that. And just the way that he's able to convey a part of, I mean, the majority of the film was not filmed in New England. It was filmed in Canada. But there's one scene right. that was filmed in Massachusetts, I believe. And even that brief glimpse, it's like, I can relate to that. I, I can remember a field I drove by or a piece of woods that I was walking through one day as a kid or something like that. And his ability just to tell, again, this story about people's fears that, like hysteria fears that we as a modern audience realize like, hey, we have an explanation for these things. But still being able to make that very terrifying in a setting for me, at least that's more that's familiar, elevates this movie above whatever kind of buzzwords people will attribute to it. Like, oh, it's art house. It's this, it's that. But it really has a primal fear element to it that you said you've seen this probably how many times now you've seen this? Maybe a dozen, yeah. two dozen. This is too many. this is for sure not my uh, my last revisit, but um, in, in not moving too far away from performances and actors, whose performance stood out to you the most? Because it's a great cast. They all are fantastic, but that's it's tough. That's really tough <laughs> because, I mean, Kate Dickey and Ralph Fiennes and, yeah. and Anya, they're all just, that's really hard. That's really hard because they're all playing very different things. I mean, do you have an answer? Yeah, so mine was probably uh, Anya. And this okay. was not my first choice the first time I watched the movie. I would have said it was uh, Einstein. And that just because yeah. he is so, but you see the weight of all the events that are happening just on his yeah. face. And yet he is yeah. the one that has very few outbursts of people. Obviously, as yeah. shit gets crazier and crazier, those come out more and more. But he eats such a, a majority of the like brunt of force of the events that are happening for half of the movie, three fourths of the movie. But yeah. in revisiting this movie and not seeing it through the lens of like, this is going to be a traditional witch movie and focusing more on the character dynamics. Like mm -hmm. I just felt a, like a new found profound sadness for her character and just this idea Anya. yeah, for Anya and that feels like everyone is against her. And that speaks yeah. to the like hysteria of the movie. Yeah. I, th I think that speaks to, probably the the place of women in the time mm -hmm. and even you know probably some unconscious commentary on modern views of women mm -hmm. but i back to Inison, his last scene before he gets wood piled <laughs> i <laughs> i think i i i'm still not a hundred percent sure what his last line means do you remember it uh i don't okay so black philip gores him mm -hmm. like stabs him and He's like wounded. He picks up an ax to do battle with the goat, which I would love to see that movie. The quote before Ineson's character, William gets killed is corruption. Thou art my father, which to me says maybe that he, I mean, he's the most stoic person. He's the most firmly rooted in his faith. I mean, his faith is what gets them kicked out of the village. It kicks off the film. So there's a lot that's like hanging on that to like hold the family together and stuff like that. To me, to have him, his last line be corruption, thou art my father. It almost feels like he's, I mean, he throws the ax down. So in a way it's admitting defeat, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the event obviously that makes him kind of lose his faith. Something that he probably never thought would ever happen. 
But I guess I... Re- so you think I, that's what that line means? He's losing faith? Well, I think it just shows it's him being very regretful, maybe, that he's dedicated his life to faith. And yet, in the end, he is... I mean, I'm reading into corruption probably a little too literally, but this idea that... No, no. I mean, it. this idea that his family has been corrupted, obviously. He, he thinks his daughter has been corrupted by witches or the devil and whatnot. And I think it just speaks more to this idea that kind of uh, a fanatical way of life and like an undevout or unwavering devotion to, in this case, it's religion. But overall, it just shows how like being so extreme in something will eventually lead to you, your life falling apart in a certain way. Like, because too too rigid and it'll break. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, them staying, if they'd stayed at the plantation, more than likely would never have happened, probably. Like, again, we talked about how um, Thomason maybe is emanating this witchcraft energy, but if that energy is not being preyed upon by the other witches in the area or the witch in the area, would these things have happened? No, she would have gone to Hogwarts. Yeah, exactly. She would have had a much happier life. <laughs> That's interesting. There's, there's also the idea, and this might not have any weight, that William is revealing that he is evil or that he has an evil force, or that he's part of everything that's been going on, and that he has served a role in it, and that his last line is him confessing, like, this is, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky line to try to, for me, to try to parse out what it means. I mean, they, have, they are all complicit. There was another true believer like them. They are all mm-hmm. complicit, essentially, in what is happening to them. Because if you think about it, like, Right. The mother is very jealous towards the daughter in a lot of ways. Like at the end when she has her breaking point, she tries to kill Thomason. She starts saying Thomason is being lustful towards the other men in the family. And it's like yeah, seducing, yeah, them. seducing yeah. them. And that's not what happened at any point in the film. No. So that's kind of like her being jealous. And that breaks a mother and daughter's bond. Essentially, you've got the twins who are very conniving. They're plotting against other people in one interpretation. Are they, are they, are they though? Well, in like, if you, if you were to believe that they are not only spreading the gospel of black Philip, but they are carrying out the words with like a specific intent. And right. That, so again, right. it kind of comes back to the ambiguity. Like I might read into something that another person might be like, well, that has no basis. But then I could say also like, well, if in this interpretation that has no basis, it's kind of what I, why I'm so glad you picked this movie. And in further getting a better uh, appreciation for it and talking with you is that we could have wildly different interpretations. And yet overall, the core elements of the film that really work well for both of us, like we're unanimous in that they are successful at what they kind of set out to do. Absolutely. And that's, what's great about art, especially art like this, that you can really pick over. I want to come back to the mother, Mm -hmm. if I may, for a moment, because in her at near the end of her character arc, uh, her son comes back to her, her sons, I should say. I, I, I guess that's the devil or Black Phillip because the witch is in the shed with the kids, unless you want to go with their multiple witches. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells her he has a book for her to sign. And that's probably the same book that Black Phillip, I'm, I'm just going to say that is Black Phillip, just because there's a book and when you know when he speaks to the mother he whispers which when he speaks to thomason at the end he's whispering it's just kind of it's played similarly yeah. so do you think that was a successful attempt to recruit the mom to be a witch established by the film at the end they they have thomason sign a book mm-hmm. And that's that's probably you know something satanic or otherworldly, something demonic. To 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 put Thomason's name in it is to basically sign a deal with the devil. Right. Uh, let's yeah. just general. And it seems like the mother was offered that same thing earlier, and we don't see her say no. So do you think the mom's a witch? So I would agree that if Thomason is obviously, we see that she has the potential for being a witch. However, you want to read into that, I would say yes mm-hmm. because obviously her mother, like that had to come from somewhere, but yeah. And I think that, and after that point, after that point, her mom becomes more unhinged her. She lets her hair come down, which as you see throughout the film, the women's hair are very like, they're very like Thomason has her hair up and it's under that thing, whatever you, those thing pilgrims wore. Um, And then throughout the film, 
near the ending that gets yanked off and then her hair gets messy and then her hair gets let down. And then at the end of the film, she's literally just naked. Like there's nothing Mm -hmm. like it is all, all puritanical life has literally been stripped from her. And she is a, it's almost a rebirth. So I'm, I'm wondering what that, if that was a successful attempt to, to convert the mom or to seduce the mom. Yes, but because of who the mother is, like that jealousy that we talked about, it drives her into attacking Thomason because I can't imagine yes. they would want uh, the mother to become a witch, to sign the book, become a witch, join their ranks, and then have them kill a much younger woman that they're trying to do the same thing to. I think yeah. I would have... Well, they could, they could have gotten them both. Well, that, I mean, they had a whole... So that's what I was going to say is that it, it's more likely that they were trying to convert one at a time, but then yeah. the mother's... Uh, character flaw is her jealousy and how that relationship with Thomason drives her to attack her, to try to kill her. And had that jealousy, like that's an unforeseen character flaw. I would assume that the devil or whoever black Philip couldn't read into as much like seeing that she would carrying it all the way to the fact she's going to try to kill her daughter, which for somebody that's That's so religious, so overly religious and like an extremist in a lot of ways, like, that's the what that would be like the worst sin imaginable. So this, yeah. So I would agree that's, that like it was they wanted the two for uh, mother daughter witch package, and yet they were pre- <laughs> they they were uh, they wanted for one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they and uh, there was an unforeseen character flaw that turned that into just the the daughter turning into a witch. But in your bringing up Black Philip in the conclusion of the film, what did you think about the decision to actually show? Black Phillip depicted as a person because the scene begins oh, from Black Phillip's perspective and we just hear him whispering, but then we see yeah. Thomason kneel down and, fr- and then the book appears, but we don't see him for majority of the f- scene. Yeah. And, and you never see the book. Like it's, it, it, it just, yeah, I loved it because it was such a, a subtle portrayal of the supernatural that like the quote unquote baby mashing scene, <laughs> your brain doesn't quite know what to do with it when the hoof turns into a boot. Right. And it's like, what, what it's a, it's a brilliant little trick they do in such a little shot. And I love that even when the change happens, you never get a good look. Right. But to me, like the other family members have been tempted throughout the film by things that they desire, whether it's, you know, a mother wanting her son's back or her silver chalice or, or what have you. Thomason at the end is tempted by what appears to be a very attractive, uh, exotic man covered in jewelry um, with promises of butter and pretty dresses. He promises just the world. Would, and I think would that, that like to live all, deliciously, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he, he, that right there is where she's like, yeah, sign me up. But I love that choice to portray him as a man, because that really takes away the quote unquote ambiguity of the film, mm-hmm. at least for the, the, the logic of the story we're telling right. or Robert is telling mm-hmm. is that this is real and this is the devil mm-hmm. and this is the form he's going to take to, you know. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that it speaks to, again, Eggers overall, the restraint that he is able to show in portraying these supernatural events where I agree with your point in that, yes, it would be a man that's dressed riches and jewels and fancy clothes and whatnot and all these things. Because like, as we learn, Thomason is becoming a woman. Her family starts talking about like, we should send her away to be with another family and whatnot. And this is for a woman that is now, she's turning into a woman and she's all alone now. Yeah, that is what a desire of somebody in that particular scenario. Yeah, that's what they would, that is how they would be swayed to sign a book like that. Like, there's never an instance where you don't understand why she's doing what she's doing, or it doesn't feel like they're kind of just having him appear as this man as this point of like a plot progression. It is very central to her character. And again, like where her character is at. Yeah. And again, like just the restraint that he has in sure he shows some supernatural moments and yet he chose to go with the very grounded depiction of just a man. And it wasn't. And like you had said, it's not, we don't see a lot of him. We see a boot, we see a hand, we see him move behind her. But again, it's never like 
like a hat. Yeah, and you see the hat, yeah. but it's never this. You see him in all of his uh, demonic prince. Oh glory. yeah. Oh oh, I see what you're saying. You're 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 expecting some guy with like horns and a pitchfork, and he's yeah. He takes yeah. the smart approach instead of doing something like that, which you right. would probably expect from I don't know how many handful of filmmakers, but I mean to be fair, he did kind of do that in his next film without going too much into it. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, no, that I could have easily seen them doing that. But that, I mean, at that point, you could argue that this whole film is a process that's being acted upon this. Fan. I see a lot of parallels between this film and Hereditary. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of myself for not talking about Hereditary too much during this. But the the thing Ari did with, hereditary is that this it's a story about this family going through this thing and then there's a bigger story of a bigger plot that's being enacted upon this family mm-hmm. that they're just completely unaware of right and I, I see the witches similarly in that what happens to thomason you could almost compare to religious or cult brainwashing where they they attack her her stability which is her family and they take that away piece by piece until the end, her whole family is dead and gone. And she has no branch to lean on. She has no foundation. It has been taken away. So she is easily susceptible. Right. She's vulnerable. And she's looking for she's looking for that safety, that comfort, that power that comes with with society, with family, with you know, a group, a church, a cult. She's been primed the entire movie for it. And it's like, exactly. and you see the, a brief glimpse at the very beginning of the film when they're being banished, right? Every, the, mm-hmm. the judges or whatnot of the town elders, they say, okay, you're banished. You have to leave. And all the family mm-hmm. members turn and leave. And she's the only one that stays for a moment. And yeah. it kind of just shows she is at odds with her family from the beginning of the film. And she doesn't even say anything. And interesting. I didn't, I didn't catch yeah, that. Yeah. And I think that that kind of speaks this idea that overall she is a quote unquote bad, uh, religious, uh, extremely religious person in that like sure. she has questions and her first instinct instead of breaking with her family is like, I mean, I like my way of life here. Do I really want to leave? And so sure. I think that uncertainty again is what is preyed upon. And that in combination with um, the kind of hysteria of the era. And again, you said, or I think we both agreed and Eggers was a little uh, uncertain of it being described that way, but it kind of does speak to this idea of feminism uh, in a way where this idea that the hysteria revolving around like witchcraft and this is, I believe this film is 60 years prior to Salem Witch Trials or something, some time frame like that, but... Okay, correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> but uh, it just shows that even though the Salem Witch Trials, which is like a big publicized event, hasn't happened yet, women are still mm-hmm. being downtrodden by like majority of men. And it's like as soon as something is presented that is not very clear, you know, not don't have an easy answer, like she is a witch. It's never, hey, maybe Caleb's a witch when start things start right. happening. It's always Thomason is the potential for being a witch. Well, to be fair, Thomason did lose the baby. This is, this so. is, this is true. <laughs> she would, uh, she would not get a babysitting job again after that. No. Oh man. What a, yeah, no, that wouldn't look good on the resume. Was there one or two other scenes that, uh, stood out to you particularly well that we kind of glossed over? Um, her last fight with her mother is one that is just gut wrenching is hard to watch and really well done between the music and the sound design and her mother is just hitting her and strangling her. And Thomason's instinct is just to say, I love you. Mm. I love you. I love you to try to get her mom to stop. And then she grabs the, whatever it is, this cutting tool. It looks like it's used to like sheath corner. I'm very ignorant about farm tools. That's okay. So you didn't know when the Salem witch trials were. I don't know anything about farming tools. Yeah, there we go. Uh, (laughs) And she, she starts just hitting her mom and the way it doesn't like she stat she hits her mom and her mom like they both pause mm-hmm. like it's a it's not an immediate like stab and you die it's like she hits her and slashes her face and then her mom starts bleeding from the head and it's going in thomason's face and it's messy and and authentic and very very disturbing and then 
Yeah, she kills her mom, and there's just I, I love that scene. Yeah. I, I don't mean to romanticize <laughs> her killing her mother, <laughs> but it is very uh, it is I very effective. I mean, that's one of the yeah. that's one of the few scenes of violence in the entire movie, right? Like, yeah, and, that's true. And that's true. his approach to making that violence like it's a very clear cut choice that he's focusing on a moment of violence happen between two family members. So it's personal. Mm -hmm. We never get this scene where the witch shows up again and she defends the family from the witch or defends herself from the witch with a knife or something like that. It's very purposeful that she has to kill her mother. And that is essentially like the deal breaker on her ever returning to any sort of normal way of life. It's just like, well, now my whole family's dead. And the significance of that is like you had said, she has no stability now in her life. She's all on her own. So it kind of speaks to, furthermore, the entire film, it, she's being primed to be susceptible to signing the book. Like, I don't know about yes. you, if my whole family's dead and I killed my mother and this new family of questionable people are like, hey, come join up with us. I'm going to sign that book. Yeah, that's why That's why cults thrive. That's why religions thrive. That's why whole you know, Freemasonry, any, any gathering of people that just has, this is our thing. This is why Facebook groups thrive. Mm-hmm. Any, you know, because we're social creatures and they, these witches very, or the witch very smartly preys upon that in a, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I mean, that's terrible. Also Caleb's death scene. Yes. Really just whew, the way the camera just kind of lingers on it. And I always forget about parts of it when I rewatch it, like the way they do some bloodletting on mm-hmm. him or the way he pops up an apple, which he had lied about earlier. Yeah. And the way I, I know Eggers like took verbatim words spoken by people who were supposedly being possessed right. and like just had Caleb say them. And so that, that makes it, that adds a level of, well, you could call it pretentious, but I think it's authentic. No, I, I think it, it's it's complemented by his entire approach to the film, right? Like he's yeah, every, yeah, that's every single that's element true. of it is authentic to the period. So if like I wouldn't obviously know if that was real dialogue that he got from somewhere, but it's sold as such. And so again, yeah. it I think it, again it comes down to the actors that they got being just as vital to the authenticity of the language itself is their performances, I mean, it just sells it so well. And um, it's especially disturbing to me, not only obviously he has to get his mouth pried open with a spoon and he's vomiting up an apple, but his, like when he rises up essentially after that, and then he starts giving like a soliloquy expressing his love of Christ. And then while experiencing was clearly like a a sexual gratification about it. Yeah. I wonder how you direct a child actor to do that without saying that. Yeah. Uh, That's always what comes to my mind is like, how do, how do you get that kind of performance out of a kid without crossing a lot? You tell their parents to translate it in an appropriate way. <laughs> I guess so. Cause man, that, wow, that, that whole scene, were there any scenes for you? So that was the scene um, that I was going to bring up just because, I mean, as we are familiar with a lot of like possession exorcism type scenes, essentially, which mm-hmm. I think in layman's terms, that's how I would describe this. But just to see yeah. kind of like the ad, he goes from this like writhing in pain and then the adulation and like ecstasy of professing his love for Christ, uh, just that mood transition and kind of just the, ex- he becomes more expressive as becomes more uh, enraptured with talking about his love for Christ. Like it's super disturbing yeah. to me. And then of course he lies down and is dead. He dies and we, and we like hold on him. He just, he just slowly dies. And it's like, wow, that is traumatic to watch. Yeah. And and again, like that's Eggers occupying a space and putting the viewer in that space. Like the camera starts far back and then kind of zooms in slowly, but then it's almost like looking down on him. And it's Mm -hmm. such a smooth transition. And it's one that I really didn't pay attention to the first time or notice, but the camera camera work doesn't draw attention. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's a rare quality where I felt like I was the one in the room that was walking in on something I shouldn't be seeing. Yes. That's a good way to put it. It feels like you were there with them. And that's, I'm very picky with like demon possession movies because I feel like they should either be super grounded, mm-hmm. like, you know, quote unquote, real demon possessions, which you can find footage of. Or if you're going to exaggerate, 
go all the way over the top. Like one extreme to the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the too many demon possession movies these days, I feel like, are in this middle ground. It's probably one of my least favorite genres, mm-hmm. which is why I, I, I mean, I'm, I've written a demon possession film just because I wanted to write something that I would want to see. Mm-hmm. And the way they play it just it feels real. It feels like, like I saw, oh, who's the director of the, Friedkin. Yep. Friedkin, there was this Friedkin documentary where he went and like documented an exorcism. Did you see that? I did not. Oh man. It was, it was within the past couple of years. Hmm. It's an interesting documentary and it's very, uh, very disturbing because you, there's something really just you look in these people's eyes and there's just something different there. And I I think Eggers really nailed that with this scene in particular. Yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why the scene works so well for me. And I'm, I, if I wanted to see one of these types of scenes, I want it to be so extremely based in realism because I mean, it lends itself to the authenticity of the overall film and the approach. Yeah. That's the language that Eggers is using for this film. So exactly. And so when think when possessions are like so over the top, that's when it starts to lose me. So I applaud him for being able to make a, like you said, like kind of like a subgenre of horror that I'm not usually a fan of and to make it genuinely disturbing right. without his head spinning around in circles or running down the stairs, like or a spider. Climb, climbing on the wall right. or yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So in uh wrapping up before I let you go, uh, was there any, projects or did you want to plug your twitter or anything uh yeah yeah you can find me at at waiter number three just the words waiter and the word number and then the number three i think that was my first acting role uh i'm funny sometimes i retweet other people's funny stuff i will attest you are funny on twitter oh thank you thank you you're you're pretty good yourself uh yeah, it, this has been fun. Hope I didn't talk too much. I just, I, I love The Witch. And it's... That's part of what I love about having guests on, man. I get to have people on that they pick the movie, so they're going to be passionate about it. It's much, It makes mm-hmm. for a much better conversation than if I'm like, hey, let's watch this movie. And then we come to talk about it. And you're like, yeah, that was a real piece of shit. <laughs> it makes for a short conversation. But uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat. And uh, for everybody listening, I highly encourage... You check out Rob's film that he wrote, This Is Our Home, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. Thanks again, man. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.